pleased to have Bill Ellis this morning as our guest speaker. That's all you needed. Bill is the founding and national engaged pastor of the Summit Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. He is a frequent conference speaker, writer, and consultant to churches, drawing from his 50-plus years of pastoring and revival ministry. Bill is also the pastor, church director for One Cry, a nationwide call for spiritual awakening, and a national leader of the 6-4 Fellowship. He is the author of 15 books, including Simply Prayer, and numerous booklets and articles. Bill holds a Master of Divinity from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, and a Doctorate of Ministry from Mid-America Seminary. He's married to Holly. They have eight married children and 26 grandchildren. Five of their sons, sons-in-law, are either pastors or church planters. Bill has recently participated in the revival at Asbury University in Kentucky and has written leadership articles about that revival. Please join me in welcoming Bill Elliff. Thanks, Russ. I told the earlier, uh, earlier crowd, I knew Russ when he was like just a normal person. <laughs> and I was his pastor uh, years ago in, in Little Rock, and so great to see him and Polly again, and great to be uh, with you all. We had a wonderful moment in the earlier service. The Lord is just stirring all over the nation, and uh, I'm really grateful that we could take this day, and I hope you'll see the whole day. I hope you'll come back tonight, because not because I'm leading, but the Lord will be here. I really believe it. And we're going to talk about how to walk into his presence and experience him and know him and talk to him and, and see how we do that on a regular basis, unceasing prayer, which is a foundation for everything. So I hope you'll come. You know, in 1970, I was a college student. It was my freshman year. I was going to a little Baptist college, Washtenaw, and in Arkansas, and the year before, I had been running from the Lord. I was a believer, but I'd just kind of been playing games, and I got sick of it, and finally, the Lord just kind of brought me to the end of myself, as he has a tendency to do, and he just flipped my life around, and so I came to Washita. My heart was on fire, and when I came to the school, there was this almost atmospheric sense of his presence. I didn't know what that was. I just, I just knew that everybody was praying. 
I was praying. We would, every night we'd gather in my room and typical of the 70s, we'd light some candles, <laughs> but we would just pray for hours and we'd go down to the chapel and we would pray sometimes all night long. And uh, I thought it's just what you did, you know, and, but what I didn't know was this was an unusual moment in our history. And uh, earlier that year, uh, the whole nation had been stirred by something that had happened at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky, similar to what has just happened, when a chapel service just kept going and lasted for seven continuous days, night and day. After that chapel season, they closed Asbury for a week, and a thousand students went to 130 different campuses around America, and everywhere they went, revival broke out. My brother was in Southwestern Revival, broke out there. I remember they, uh, they went to Azusa Pacific University. They showed up during a basketball game. They said, we've just come to tell what God's doing on our campus. And they said, well, here's a mic. You can talk during halftime. And they did, and they never finished the game. The Lord just moved in. Kids were saved. Lives were changed. So that was the atmosphere. And we were coming out of a decade that was absolute chaos. Anarchy, riots, Kent State. Some of you nodding your heads. You were there. I bet you had a tie-dye shirt. And... Uh, an unbelievable historic sexual revolution, very similar to what we're experiencing right now. Sexual confusion was incredible. It was just a dark, dark period, all kinds of rebellion. And, and out of that, I didn't realize this, but out of that had, had, had grown this desperation that led to a cry from people, the church, oh, God, save us. We can't Nothing can save us. And so this had broken out at Asbury, but there were, it was just not at Asbury. Asbury was kind of the match on the, on the ground of gasoline, and, uh, and this movement began to explode. Well, I, I was there at Washtaw, and one day uh, a man came to chapel. His name was Jack Taylor, who in his church, he had had a guy, Manly Beasley, who later became a mentor to me, to come for a week of meetings, and that week had extended to a second week, a third week, and a fourth week. Just an extraordinary movement, and he told about it in chapel. I was just, I was enthralled. I mean, I, I just sat there thinking, that's exactly what we need on our campus. And I happened to be in charge of the little 15-minute noonday uh, service that we had every day, and so I asked Mr. Taylor, I said, would you come over and speak to Noonday? He came over and uh, he spoke for five minutes. And the only way I've ever been able to explain that moment was God came. God just came. That 15-minute service went an hour, two hours, three hours. The chapel filled. All classes were canceled. Kids were getting saved. They were confessing their sins. They were getting right with each other. People that had hated each other became friends. 
There was a thing we had on campus called a phone booth. Some of you have no idea what that is. But anyway, there was a long line of students in that phone booth who were calling their parents and other people and clearing their conscience and getting things right and being reconciled. Students were going back to professors and confessing how they cheated on tests. And it was just an amazing movement of God. And I sat there right in the middle of it. I had never experienced anything like that. And I realized, though, that God can do more in five minutes of his manifest presence than 50 years of our best work. Something happened to me that day. A week or so ago, the president of that university is a dear friend now asked me to come speak, and I didn't know he was going to have it in that same chapel where that happened, and I got up to speak. I couldn't talk because it just hit me that everything in my life had changed on that day and for the next 53 years because I had tasted of the presence of God, and everything flows from God's presence. I mean, everything. If you have his presence, you've got everything. If you don't have his presence, you've got nothing. If his presence is in a service like this, well, then everything is here, right? But if for some reason we are not allowing his presence or we're hindering his presence, then we have nothing. It's just a nice meeting, right? If I have his presence in my life, my home, my school... Anything's possible. And that's why we say that this term revival, it's not, it, it doesn't mean putting up a sign and saying we're, we're having a revival here next Tuesday. Maybe so, maybe not. <laughs> revival, the, the, the historic meaning of that term, the biblical meaning of that term, term is the needed, necessary, extraordinary work of the Spirit of God that produces extraordinary results. In other words, God is working all the time. He's moving all the time. You, you couldn't have gotten out of bed literally this morning without God. In Him, we live and move and have our being. A lot of people don't realize that. But there are moments in human history with God out of His great kindness his unbelievable mercy, because we don't deserve it, opens the windows of heaven and comes down. And we experience him in ways that we couldn't do at any other time. We call this the manifest presence of God, not the omnipresence. He's everywhere all the time. But when he manifests himself, that word manifest means clear, visible, unmistakable. Nobody can miss it. Even secular people say, what's going on? Suddenly the news is on Tucker Carlson and the morning show and CNN. And, and like we've just seen with the Asbury awakening, there have been one billion posts on TikTok mentioning the Asbury revival. One billion. Who could orchestrate that? Who could do that? What are they talking about? They're talking about an extraordinary movement of God that is producing extraordinary results. And so on March, excuse me, February 8th, 
in a normal chapel service just a few weeks ago. You know this, many of you know this story, but uh, the speaker was just talking about the love of God out of Romans 12, all the things that we need to be doing, forgiving each other, loving without hypocrisy, caring for each other. And he came to the end, he said, you know, you really can't, you can't love like this on your own. You cannot do it. Unless you have tasted of the love of God and you know God and you have God who is love living inside of you and flowing through you. That's the only way you can love like this. And if you don't, if you don't know him, if you haven't tasted of his goodness and you think God is something else, you're never going to love like this. And so he said to the students, he said, look, if you want that, if you want to experience God like that, why don't you just, why don't you just wait for him? Why, why don't you just stay after chapel and just pursue the Lord and ask him to make himself known to you? And 19 students stayed behind, just 19. They just started praying, reading their Bible, singing, and it just continued, and they looked up, and by the afternoon, there were 200. It went all through the afternoon, the evening, the next day, the next night. By the weekend, there were 2,000, and then there were 20,000, and then there were 100,000 people that came to that little town of 6,000 till finally they just literally had to shut the town down and they came from all over the world. They came from campuses. First, there were 10 campuses that had come, then 22, then 200, over 200 uh, from around the nation. So when my, when my wife and I heard about this, and I've been a student of revival for 53 years because I, I just know that everything hinges on the presence of God. I've written books about it. I've, and, I, and, and that's why my passion about prayer, I, I had a guy say one time to me, he said, well, you're kind of a prayer guy. I said, no, I appreciate that. I'm really honored that anybody would say that. But here's, here's what I pray I am. I'm a presence of God guy. And prayer is the means that we enter in and experience. You can't experience the presence of God without praying, without opening the door, without entering in. And so prayer has become so important to me. And so when my wife and I heard about this happening on Thursday of that first week, we, uh, she looked at me and I looked at her on Friday and we said, she said, let's go. I, I married a let's go kind of woman. And uh, we've been let's going all over the place for many years. So we got in the car and drove nine hours to Wilmore. And the next morning when we walked into the auditorium, uh, it was not what you might picture. It wasn't that you walk in and your you know hair stands on end and your clothes are blown off or something. You know, It's, it's not like some... Thing like that. It was just this quiet, precious moving of the Holy Spirit. And the presence of God was so thick in that room. It was orderly. There was a reverence. There was an awe. 
There was an amazement. The, the students were coming up and, and under, they would take some students and they would take them back to what they called a consecration room and spend an hour with them, making sure their hearts were right before they would let them lead. And then four or five students would come up with a guitar and a piano and they would just lead, no PowerPoint, no, they messed the words up, they sang off key. It didn't matter. Nobody was looking at them. We were just all looking at Jesus. And this unbelievable worship would go on for hours. The altar was constantly full. And a prayer team from the university was just ministering these people at this altar. And the, and the leaders of Asbury, who, who understand this and are wise about it, were listening to the Lord. And they were leading but they were leading by God initiation. They were leading under the Spirit's leadership. And so they would come to the microphone and, and say, we, we sense we need to open the microphone. And a hundred people would line up. And they began to tell us stories about what was happening in that altar. And here's a woman who said, you know, I was raped two years ago. I've been so angry, bitter. I haven't had a day that I don't think about it. And, and three nights ago, God delivered me. I've been full of joy. I have been set free. I have forgiven the one who did this to me. And then another one and another one and another one. Here's a 10-year addiction that God has released me from. Just story after story. I came in here. I didn't want to come. And God saved me. And, uh, you know, just, just story after story of just healing and deliverance and salvation. It was just glorious, right? And then a little while they come up and say, we just, we just sense we need to read the word. And people would line up and, and for the next hour and a half, we just read the scripture and it just washed over your soul. This went on for hours and hours and hours and you just couldn't leave. You just couldn't leave. What was that? It was, it was a plan that the Asbury guys came up with. No. It was a new program that we're calling the revival program. No. It was the presence of of God because everything flows from his presence so you know I just so live my life for this because I don't think there's anything more important I just and so I'm just always asking the Lord, Lord, what are you doing here? What, what's going on? What are you about? Because as Henry Blackaby used to say, we need to, the Christian life is not a program. It's about seeing where God is and joining him, All right? Not going the opposite direction, not running from him, not shutting the door that he wants to open. And so I've just, I'm just observing all this. I began to write about it some and and one day, three or four days in, I, uh, I came to Psalm 48. You may want to open it in your Bibles, but Psalm 48. And I began to study and just read this verse in my normal reading. I'm just reading it over and over again. And what I discovered about this psalm that was written by worship leaders, by the way, the sons of Korah, was this was written in the greatest moment in Israel's history before or since. 
the glorious days of David's reign, who was a who is a type, a picture of Jesus and his ultimate reign. And, and Jerusalem was at this extraordinary spot. And the reason it was is because they had a king named David who lived for the presence of God. He said things like this, uh, in your presence, Psalm 16, is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. He said, I'd, I'd rather spend one day in the, course of the courts of the Lord than dwell in tents of wickedness, right? I mean, this was just David's, this is why we love him. This is why the Psalms thousands of years later just keep ministering to us because David was a man after God's own heart. He knew where to find everything he needed, and it was in his shepherd. And if he would walk with his shepherd, he would have everything he needed, and so that's why David brought the ark back to Jerusalem. You remember that story? And, and it, the ark represented the presence of God. And, and it was a picture. It was a type. And, and, and he brought the ark, went to great lengths to bring the ark back into Jerusalem. And he just danced. He just worshipped. He was so excited because the presence of God was there. And so these, these worship pastors wrote this psalm about what was happening in Jerusalem during that time. And here's what they said. Look in verse 1 of Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, this city, this holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. It has become the joy of the whole earth. Everybody in that day looked to Jerusalem and, and, and rejoiced and just couldn't believe it and thought, boy, I wish I could live there. I wish I could experience what's happening in Jerusalem, but they may not have realized it was the presence of God. You say, well, how, how did that happen? Look at verse 3. God in her palaces and in all these places in Jerusalem, here's the key, has made himself known. The manifest presence he has chosen to, to do something that couldn't happen any other way. So you say, Bill, what's happened at Asbury? And by the way, you may think that because the nightly meetings and the daily meetings at Asbury have stopped, and there was a very intentional purpose for that, and kind of the, the buzz on Facebook and stuff has kind of slowed down, you may think that it's over Nothing could be further from the truth. And I'll show you that in just a minute. It's spreading like wildfire, multiple campuses, churches. A movement of spiritual awakening is happening across our nation. So let me just, in a brief way, just tell you three or four things I think the Lord is doing. So we can join him. Number one, God is revealing himself. Now, he doesn't have to do this, right? I mean, he's God. He can do whatever he wants to. And we have ignored him. And always in the cycle of human history, what's happened is the church is walking with God, and then we start ignoring him. We don't pray. We don't talk to him. We don't surrender to him. We go through 
you know, we go through a week or a month or a year without really praying, which is a clear indication that we think we can live our lives without God. It's just pure pride, right? And, and when that happens, the judgment or discipline of God comes in this cycle, which is a wonderful thing. It's like pain to the human body that tells you something is wrong. It's going to lead to disastrous results. You need to make an adjustment. That's the mercy of God. And by the way, one of his greatest judgments is just letting us go. Just said, okay, you don't want me? You don't want me in your home? You don't want me in your school? You don't want me in your church? Then I'll let you feel what it's like. We see that, by the way, described in Romans chapter 1. When God says that when we walk away from the Lord and began to worship and serve the creature instead of the creator, God gives us up to certain things, to ourselves. By the way, the third one of those statements God gives us up is he gives us up to a reprobate mind or a depraved mind. You know what that word literally means? It's a mind that has completely lost the ability to make moral judgments, that looks at wrong and it's absolutely right to them. Black is white, white is black, and they can't make the distinction. You know, 30 years ago, I would hear somebody say something and it would be so totally ridiculous. I would think nobody in their right mind could believe that. Nobody. Is this guy just lying or does he, does he really believe this? And I would find out he really believed that. And I thought, you know, he's got an IQ, he's got a brain. How could he possibly believe that? But that's what a reprobate mind is. I used to hear those statements occasionally. Now it is the common consciousness of our nation. I heard a guy yesterday on the radio who was just yelling at the top of his lungs. The reason our children are stealing and, and ransacking stores is that you, government, are not giving them more money. You give us money and they'll stop. Can I have, give you a big biblical word for that? It's stupidity. <laughs> it's foolishness. But he believed it with all of his heart. That's a reprobate mind. And it's a sign that we have said no, 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 no to God, and God has given us up. But what happens in that cycle with the church and the people of God is that cycle of judgment and pain and discipline brings us to desperation. We try to fix it with government or with money or with this or that or nice programs. Nothing fixes that. And so we cry out to God, and I've studied this, wrote a book about it, I can't find a single place in Scripture where God's people corporately, together, united in a humble, repentant cry that God didn't hear and answer and send revival and spiritual awakening. And, and what revival is, is God. What happened at Asbury three weeks ago is God began to show himself to these kids. 
And if you go, we won't do it, but if you went farther in Psalm 58, it says, Lord, we're, now we're thinking about your loving kindness. We didn't think you were loving. We didn't think you were kind. Now we're overwhelmed with your loving kindness. And we're seeing your righteousness, your holiness. And that's why you see all these students just break out in praise and worship, and then they see the holiness of God, and they're falling down in repentance. And repentance is not this... Man, you know, turn or burn, you got to repent. Real biblical repentance is we see the Lord and see how foolish the direction we've been going is, and we say, you know what, this doesn't make any sense. And we have a profound change of mind, a spirit-wrought change of mind that makes us want to turn and then just leave these things with no regrets. That's like the prodigal who said, he came to his senses. And he said, my father's got everything. I'm going to get up and go to my father. That's what's been happening at Asbury by the hundreds and by the thousands. So God is revealing himself. And then secondly, in light of that revelation and this fresh manifestation of God that we're seeing, God is reviving his children. I don't know if you know this or not. Because the devil is a great liar, and he's been doing it since the garden. He's very gifted at this. And I want to tell you something. Listen very carefully. What I'm about to say is really profound. Are you ready? God loves you. He is full of loving kindness. God is all... Not only full of love, he's full of kindness. And he longs for you. He wants the best for you. His will is good and acceptable and perfect, lacks nothing. But we became convinced that that's, that's not what God is like. And so we run from him. We go everywhere else. So what happens in the, as God reveals himself, then what we're seeing now is God is reviving his children. And he does that because he loves you. And he, he knows how foolish it is for you to go anywhere else. He alone, where can we go? You alone have the words of life. And as he's reviving his children, another thing is happening. He's beginning to reform his bride, the church. I, I'm just telling you, after spending, I spent two or three days there, Holly and I did in the beginning. Then I came back, spent the last two days and helped out with a collegiate day of prayer broadcast, uh, which by the way, some of you know this, that collegiate day of prayer, which has been going on for 200 years since the second great awakening, began to be broadcast about three years ago, and it had been planned for a year to be broadcast from Hughes Auditorium at Asbury University. And another little coincidence is... A man who, whose father was changed in the Jesus movement. He did a movie about it called Woodlawn. And that man, John Irwin, uh, eight years ago began to say, we've got to tell the story of the Jesus movement. And it just happened to be released the day after the National Collegiate Day of Prayer. Amazing coincidence, all this happening. 
What I watched for several days in that auditorium and, and I'm seeing now in multiple places across our canvas is God bringing a reformation, a reforming of his church. Now, this is not like, you know, Martin Luther. That was a reformation because the church had lost a doctrinal truth about salvation by grace through faith. But the need now, it, it, we always need biblical reformation. But the need is for spiritual reformation. The, the need is for experiential Christianity. In other words, we need a reformation in prayer. I can't, I've, been, I've been doing this for a while. I can't tell you how many staff members, not your staff, but staff members have come up to me and said, I've never prayed one time. I've been here 10 years. I've never prayed one time with my pastor. We don't pray. The church doesn't pray. And yet this was what drove the Acts church, right? It's mentioned 35 times in the book of Acts. We need a reformation of prayer because prayer is not just a thing. It's the thing. The apostle said, we're going to devote ourselves to two things, prayer and the ministry of the word. Because how can you build a church if you're not talking to the head? So we need a reformation of prayer. We need a reformation of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 59 times in the 28 books of Acts. And we want, we want, <laughs> we want the Acts church that exploded and, and the gospel advanced and accelerated, but we're afraid of the Holy Spirit because of things we see and excesses perhaps. But we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're to be controlled by him. We're to listen to him. We're to let him lead. That was one of the things I saw at Asbury is these wise leaders were listening to the Lord. And because they were praying, they were letting the Holy Spirit lead through them. And it was so humble and so gracious and so orderly. And some of the crazy things you read that happened at Asbury on Facebook are written usually by people who were not there and they're not true. It was beautiful. And a reformation of just spontaneous, unhindered, glorious, unproduced worship. I mean, I could just go on and on and on, but but what God does in moments like this of revival and spiritual awakening is he reveals himself. He starts reviving Christians and bringing them to life again in extraordinary, rapid ways. And then with revived lives, we just start doing what the Spirit is telling us to do, and, and it starts bringing reformation to the church. Now, by the way, let me just pause right here because I was there in the 70s, and I watched it. Most historians would say that the Jesus movement was short-lived, far shorter than it could have been. And you know why? Most churches would not accept the new wineskins that came with that movement. They didn't like hippies coming into the church. They didn't like guitars. Can you fathom guitars in church? I'm telling you, there were, there were huge, massive wars about this. And many churches said, look, 
to, to the next generation. They said, look, we got this. We've been doing this a long time. We like our forms. They're comfortable. Our wineskins are nice. They're non-threatening. So we're not going to be open to what God is doing and the change it may bring. And it quenched the spirit. I don't want to, I don't want to do that. Do you? God, help us. So this reformation is happening. And here's a fourth thing. And this is so beautiful. God is redeeming the next generation. I could just weep about this. I've got these 26 grandchildren. just makes me tired saying that. <laughs> 20 of them are under nine. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> so loud. It's insane. I love every one of them. I don't relish the thought of them growing up in a really messed up generation. And when you look at Gen Z, what you see as a result of a lot of things and forces in their life and their homes, it is the most messed up generation we've had in a long time. You hear all the even secular people talking about the tragedy of, the, of mental health. That's the big term now that you're hearing all over the news media. We've got to take care of the mental health. Why are all these things? Why do we have the highest rate of suicide and self-abuse and, and uh, pornography and you know, on and on? Why is this happening? Well, it's the mental health of our ch children. What they're saying is our kids are angry, fearful, depressed, so confused that they don't even know if they're a boy or a girl. And that's our next generation, by and large. Now here, I was sitting in Houston, and I was listening to those testimonies of all those Gen X, Gen Z kids. And the instant deliverance they were experiencing in the presence of God. And I was thinking, they don't need 20 years of counseling they need the presence of God. And I watched God just setting the captives free. I mean, that's what he came to do, right? That's what he said he would do. And it just hit me. I was sitting there one day, and I just thought, every pastor and missionary and mom and dad that are going to build homes and educator and businessman and godly Christian lay people and leaders of the church, all of them are coming out of that generation. And if God doesn't send revival and healing and deliverance and change in that generation, watch out for the next one, right? So in his mercy, and if we'll cooperate with him, I think what God is doing is he is redeeming a generation. Somebody say hallelujah. And I want to tell you something fascinating. If you study revival history in America, you will decide, discover that we have had five great nationwide movements. The First Great Awakening in 17 mid-30s, 
And then about 60 years later, the second great awakening that started in the 1790s and beyond. And then about 40, 50 years later, the prayer revival of 1857 in which 1 million people were saved out of a population of 30 million in New York City, by the way, during that movement of God, in New York City, you're not going to believe this, but I can prove this, 10,000 people a week were coming to Christ. 10,000 this week, 10,000 the next week, 10,000 the next week. And those were just those who were being baptized and joining churches. Estimates are way higher than that. 50,000 people in New York for two years straight were meeting every day at the noon hour for prayer. 50,000. I have, a, I have a, a, a headline from the Denver Post in 1858 that says, Whole city stops during the noon hour and turns from sordid ideas to pray. This is on the front page. That's the manifest presence of God. And then about 60 years later, the Welsh revival, which in, a, in, in six months, 100,000 people came to Christ in a little principality that's smaller than New Jersey. And that spread literally around the world, spread here to the United States. And then about 60 years later, the Jesus movement, you see this pattern? Every 40 to 60 years, God has redeemed a generation. And it's been 53 years since 1970. God is redeeming a gen generation. That's what he wants to do. That's why when the, the meeting stopped for a number of reasons, one of the main reasons is because the leaders at Asbury felt it was time to turn our eyes off Asbury and put them on your own cities and your own campuses. It's very deliberate and spirit-led. And now we're hearing movements everywhere, just stirrings in different ways, prayer meetings happening. My, one of our, our staff members who's on an anniversary trip in Hawaii texted us this morning and she said, you know, I don't believe this. I went out to the beach and there was a whole group of people standing on the beach singing, and I watched them baptized. She said, I quit counting at 20, 20 college students in the ocean. What is that? It's the extraordinary movement of God that produces extraordinary results. And so as this is spreading, and it is spreading, and we are seeing people saved and baptized. In the last two weeks, I've had pastors who in one day saw 104 people saved and baptized. Another one who has 80 who have come to Christ in the last two weeks. Another one with 52 students who were baptized on one night. Just, fine. Just people saying, I've come to Christ and I'm not leaving this room till you baptize me. And I could just tell you a dozen or more stories like that. God is redeeming this generation. And here's the other thing he's doing, and I'll close. I think he's raising up an army. Because, you know, when you get revived, your heart starts beating in unison with the heart of God. And you know what God's heart beats for? Every tongue, tribe, nation, and people. It could even be that 
through COVID and the pandemic, where, where in the midst of that, we were stripped down to nothing. All of our idols were removed in six weeks. Entertainment, sports, health, money. Even the church, we relied on all these things to make us kind of feel good about ourselves. It was just stripped down to nothing. And pastors and people got desperate, began to cry out. That happened not just in the U.S., right? It happened all over the world. No place was untouched. I'm wondering if God is setting up for a global movement, and we're already seeing that in some nations, to raise up a great army to reach people in every nation for Christ. So here's the question. I could just go on for hours. Here's the question. What about you? I was sitting that first day in Hughes Auditorium, and I was watching, and I've studied this, and I've read, and I've written, and I was just observing, looking around, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit tapped me on the shoulder and said, Bill, I don't want you, you're not here to be a spectator. You're here to be a participant. And pretty soon I found myself on my face at that altar. What about you? I mean, could all this happen and it miss you? Absolutely. Could all this happen and a church just doesn't respond to the Lord and, uh, and it goes past you because God is moving and he's going where people are open. He's going where people will make room. Pastors call me and say, what do I do? I say, make room. Just make room. Make room in your services. Make room in your church. Open up the doors of the church for people to come pray. Just don't manipulate anything. Don't try to manufacture anything. Just make room. The Lord is coming. And he's manifesting himself by his grace. Make room for him. So what will you do? What will you do? Will you give the God who created you and saved you by his grace and gave you every good and perfect thing that you have and will ever have? Will you give him afresh your life, your time, your resources, your future and your fears and your doubts and your sin just lay it at his feet and come to Jesus would you bow together with me The altar is open, and I'm going to ask some of the pastors and elders to be standing on the side, because you may need someone to help you in prayer, but I'm going to ask you very quietly just to stand to your feet. Would you do that with heads bowed and eyes closed?
And if you would say this morning, I don't want the Lord to pass me by. I want his presence in my life. I really want his presence in my home and in my marriage. I need him. We need him in this church and in the schools and businesses and government in our community. We need a visitation from God. And as for me in my house, I'm going to open the door to him. If that's the desire of your heart, I'm going to ask you right now just to get out from where you are and just come to this altar. We're going to pray together. Just come. You can kneel. You can stand. I just want the Lord. you're here at this altar I wonder if you just tell the Lord what's on your heart just tell him he's right here he's listening you may need to begin with a confession Lord forgive me for ignoring you forgive me for my prayerlessness forgive me for just living for everything else but you Just pour your heart out to him at this altar. Forgive me for looking everywhere else. Pornography, business, activity reputation but to the only one who deserves my full attention and who satisfies my heart and I wonder like those students at Asbury if right now at this altar you would just say this to the Lord Lord reveal yourself afresh to me If you want to wake me up in the middle of the night and take me to your word where I can see you and hear you or just take me there. I promise you, he, he is more anxious than you are to answer that prayer. Lord, make yourself known to me. And would you pray for your family? Lord, would you make yourself known to my family, to my mom, my dad, my children, my grandchildren? Oh, God, in the midst of what you're doing, please don't pass our family by. Make yourself known. 
Lord. And would you pray for this dear church? Lord, would you manifest yourself in this church? In every church in our, our area. Do it in ways that we couldn't plan, organize. Just make yourself known, Lord. And like the church at Laodicea, you said you were standing at the door knocking, and all we had to do was open the door. Lord, we just want to tell you at this altar, by the grace of God, we're opening the door. Lord, please come. And would you ask the Lord to tell you in new ways what you're to do each moment of the day because your life belongs to Him. And if you have some debilitating thing in your life, God can use whatever means He desires but would you ask him, Lord, would you deliver me? Cry out like the woman who reached up and touched the hem of his garment. And she was healed. Just say, Lord, heal me. Deliver me by your grace. Just ask him. So, Father, here we are at this altar. Lord, the altars have been full in hundreds of churches in the last few weeks. We're so grateful that you are moving among us. And Lord, we just say at this altar, pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry, while on others you are calling. Lord, do not pass me by, and don't pass us by. And Father, give us grace to not quench or stop or hinder the moving of your Spirit among us. And Lord, we want to tell you, and would you just say this to him out loud, I love you, Lord. Just tell him that right now. Just look right into his face and his kind eyes and just tell him one more time how much you love him. you look this way for just a moment just stay right where you are so some of you have come down to this altar and you're just longing for God and you want him and you and the Lord sees that and he wants that for you more than you could ever possibly imagine some of you are coming down and you need to be saved you just need to be saved you, I mean that's just the long and short of it you need to give your life to Christ for the first time. Please don't leave this room without coming. We're going to have our, our, our elders and pastors standing around the front on each side. Come to them and say, I just, I just realized I need to be saved. Somebody here says, I need to be baptized. I've been saved. I haven't been baptized. Or I was saved after I was baptized, and I just need to get that right. I just... I need to be baptized, and I'm glad to do it. I've been kind of hesitant 
because I'm kind of proud and I didn't want anybody to think, you know. But I, I don't care. I want to follow the Lord obediently and give testimony of my faith. Tell one of these guys and, and they'll set that up. And some of you are wrestling with some real issues that you need to be delivered by the work of the Holy Spirit. And I want to encourage you to go to one of these men. If you want to, if you want to, we're going to close here in just a minute. But if you want to just tarry here this morning, there's, there's no reason for us to close the building here for a little while. So if you want to just pray, if you just want to cry out to the Lord, you just stay around and, and have at it. <laughs> Amen. Here's the promise from the one who made you. If you seek me, I will let you find me. Isn't that beautiful? If you search for me with all your heart, just seek me. I'll show myself to you. So let's pursue him. Amen.